Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Many of you know my mom, uh, been a part of the church, obviously, um, from the very beginning. And, and for those of you that have bumped into her here at church, you would know that my mom just comes across as a sweet lady. You know, my mom is just nice. And I remember even as a kid thinking my mom is nicer than all the other moms, okay? Because my mom is legitimately nice. If you've had a conversation with her or if you've, if you've hung out with her, you know, she is the kind of mom who volunteers in the school tuck shop. There's a special kind of mom that volunteers in the school tuck shop. My mom did it for 16 years because we were four siblings, and uh, she, what, she had this, this theory of what you do for one, you got to do for all of them. So 16 years later, um, she finally retired from tuck shop duty on a Monday. Um, she's the kind of grandma who spoils the grandkids with way too many sweets. This is like a weekly discussion with us, like, Mom, please limit the sugar. And she says yes, but we can see in her face <laughs> that she is lying. Um, and that she will not hold true to that. So if you know my mom, you'll know that she has this sweet demeanor, but that obscures the fact oftentimes that she's actually one of the most tenacious, determined, and no-nonsense people that I've ever known. Uh, we actually had a prophet once prophesy over my mom and say that, uh, described her as a bulldog, and that would be an accurate prophecy, right? <laughs> my mom is very no-nonsense, and a few people would guess if they met her that she actually had a PhD in business success and mentors MBA students across the country and leads a very large uh, company um, from Monday to Friday. Few people would know how really no-nonsense she is. And this kind of, for us as kids growing up, whenever we went to my mom and said we weren't feeling well or something's wrong or we had any other minor issue, my mom's favorite line was, just say, Futsak devil, okay, which Futsak devil is Afrikaans, loosely translated means go away devil, although the go away part's not so nice, all right, so, so it's like go away devil, so we realized that whenever we have minor issues, sympathy would not be forthcoming from our mother, right, it's like mom, I'm not feeling well, just say go away devil and get ready for school, you know, <laughs> those that know me today know that I kind of apply the same, you know, sense with my own kids and even with my staff, you know, when they come with little issues, I'm like, sorry, sorry, what's the problem? Let's just get on with it, okay? I don't, you know, my kids, you have to be really sick before I will uh, let you stay away from school or whatever. And so it develops kind of this, this no-nonsense kind of faith. And, and this came into our faith. This came into our belief because what my mom taught us was that, the, that our faith is actually really practical, that it is mystical, that it is, that it is, that it is supernatural, that it requires faith to understand that, that God formed the, the universe by the words of his mouth, that he spoke it all into being. Yes, there's that ethereal sense to it, but it's also grounded. It's also practical. It's also very real world. It, it, it has an impact in our lives every day. It really does. And so my mom's favorite thing to say would be, watch and pray. The Bible tells us you must watch and pray. In other words, you can pray that God must protect you, but you've also got to lock your doors at night, right? When you go to bed, like don't leave your doors open and then, and then go to bed and say, no, God will protect me. God also gave us a brain. 
and he doesn't want us to be stupid. He wants us to employ the brain that he gave us. But here's where that really comes home to the message I want to share with you today, and this is a message entitled, An Act of Hope. If you're taking notes, you can write that down, An Act of Hope. As long as our faith isn't something that actually impacts and has bearing on the way that we live our daily lives, has an impact on the decisions that we make, the way we conduct our relationships, the way we, we work within our careers, and all the other minor tasks that make up everyday life, it really isn't worth much at all. If what you believe is not transferring into how you live, then it would be fair for us to question how much you believe it. Because belief inspires action. If you truly believe something, if you truly trust in something, it would, it would uh, motivate you and move you and inspire you to take certain steps. And so faith that doesn't impact practically your daily life really isn't faith at all. Eugene Peterson says, no true spiritual life can be distilled or abstracted out of this world of chemicals and molecules, paying your bills and taking out the garbage. Can God be involved? Even in your taking out of the garbage? Even in you cleaning your house? Even in you driving to work on a Monday morning? Is God the center of all parts of your life and is your faith in Him directing and shaping your movements on a daily basis, or, it is, or is it just something that you claim to have? Our faith is in a supernatural God, but this supernatural God is deeply involved in our natural world. They're connected. Heaven and earth are connected. God is present, and this is part of what makes the gospel so great. This is part of what, what, what makes what we believe and, and what the Bible declares who our God is and who Jesus is. It's part of what makes it so beautiful and, and so, so captivating is that we're not serving some distant God. It's not some dormant God sitting on a mountain far away shouting down commands at us. He is with us. He is involved. He walks with us. He speaks to us. He, he cares about the minor details of your life. I had a, an English teacher who once told me that I shouldn't pray for little things because one day I'll need something big and then I should have saved my prayers for the big thing as if God has a limited number of prayers that he's going to answer on your behalf and if you waste it on silly things like trying to find a parking space right in front of the mall, then how is he going to heal you when you need healing or help you when you need help? And she had the wrong idea because God's grace is not limited. In fact, God encourages us to trust him in the minor details because it's a training ground that when you come to the bigger crises of life, you know how to pray, you know how to trust, you know how to believe. It grows exponentially. Faith like love doesn't get used up. It grows as you use it. People think, I've only got love for so many people. I can only love a certain number. But what really happens is when you begin to love somebody, love grows within you, and you're able to love more people. So the more you love, the more you're able to love. And it's the same with faith. We see it in the life of David. David trusted God to help him deliver the sheep when he was a shepherd from 
you know, those that would, would attack the sheep, the lion and the bear, and God helped David in those smaller situations to protect those physical lambs. And then when it came time for David to take care of the sheep of God, the flock of God, the people of Israel, and to fight against the giant Goliath, he said, I know this. I've practiced for this. I've been applying my faith in real-world situations for so long that I can stand before giants, even though I'm a young boy, and say, how dare he defy us? How dare he defy the armies of God? There's something that happens when you take your faith from something ethereal, mystical, theoretical, out there in the, in the realm of philosophy, and you say, how does this impact the way I live today? And the more you live like that, the more you begin to develop a life of faith. The more you actually realize that the life God has called us to is incredibly practical. That faith is practical. We serve a God that cares about the details of our lives that wants to be involved in all those things. He lived among us. He lived among us. This is what separates and sets apart the gospel from every other thought of religion. Besides the fact that God is true, that he's the one true God that created heaven and earth, what sets it apart is that we, there's no other religion where God the creator came and lived with his people, with his creation. The same God who spoke the universe into being and holds it in the palm of his hand entered his creation, became subject to the elements, became subject to the people. He lived among us, the Bible tells us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus experienced life on earth. That's so encouraging to us because we sometimes think, but what does God know about what I'm going through right now? What does he know about, about disappointment? What does he know about hardship? What does he know about betrayal? What does he know about financial crisis? What does God know about having a career in this real world? He's up there, he's God, he has all the power, but I'm struggling. Well, the Bible tells us that God became flesh, that Jesus came to earth, that he dwelt amongst us, and that he experienced all the things that we experience, that he was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, there was nothing stately about him that you would look at him with awe. He was despised and rejected by men. Jesus didn't walk around being, you know, just the most popular person. He had to grow. He had to develop a career. His dad was a carpenter, his earthly father in Joseph. And Jesus had to learn the trade. He had to learn the family business. He had to learn to read and to write. Can you just think about that for a moment? The creator of heaven and earth had to learn to read and write. This is the God that we serve, one that is intimately connected with what it means to be human. That's a beautiful thing. That's an incredible thing. He scuffed his knee. He got dust in his face. He learned to read and write. He went to weddings and had dinner with friends. He suffered betrayal and insult and pain. He lived a real life in the real world and therefore is a compassionate Savior. How beautiful. John 1.14 says that the word God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. He experienced every temptation, yet was without sin. This is a fantastic reality. 
The creator lived with his creation. The word became flesh, not sitting distant from us, shouting down commands, but instead God set his supernatural, miraculous, redemptive work into the context of human history. He could have just done it all by himself, just showed up and did, done it all by himself, but instead he called an individual and then he called a community. And then he called a nation. And then he was involved with that nation. And then he used that nation to reach every other nation. God set his work of redemption in the course of human history. And so it's incredibly supernatural and miraculous and beyond what we can see, but also very much human and real and, and present with us in this world. Natural. Jesus was both perfectly God and perfectly human. And this helps us to know how we're supposed to live. We are thoroughly spiritual beings. We were given as human beings. God breathed his spirit into us, and we are spiritual beings, which is why we can have a relationship with God as spirit. He can speak to our hearts as deep cries out unto deep. That's how God speaks to us. We can be aware of his voice. We can be empowered by his Holy Spirit. But we're also deeply human. We're called to be deeply human, able to walk practically in this world with both grace and grit. And both of these things are from God. We're spiritual and we're natural. They're not set against each other. Have you ever heard the phrase when people say some people are, are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good? And that describes something like people that claim to have a lot of faith, and so they almost see reality, they almost see the physical world as something evil to be abstained from, to, be, to remove themselves from it. This is a false doctrine. God doesn't call us to step outside of our world. He calls us, like he called the people of Israel, to work for the good of our world, to be involved, to engage like Jesus engaged. So we're not trying to disassociate with our world. We're not trying to be a separated, secluded little community that is separated from the issues of our city and nation. We're called to be alive to the reality of our context and the people that we are doing life with, the people that we're in the city with. But you get some Christians that, that kind of just sit with their earphones listening to, to worship all day long, just aloof to what everybody else is going through, the pain and suffering that others may feel. And that is not faith. It's dissociation. It's a defense mechanism against the realities of this world. But God engages with reality. And he is the ultimate reality. There's a link here between heaven and earth. There's a very real reality that is both simultaneously present with us and in a supernatural realm. And you exist, we exist in both spaces. The Bible says that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Right now, that is your spiritual reality, is that you are seated with Christ, you are made one with Christ, you belong to God, you're a child of God, you're a citizen of heaven, and you are seated with Christ in heavenly places right now. But you're also seated here in a chair this morning in this building. And so there is a link 
between your heavenly life and your spiritual reality and the reality you live out on earth. Jeremiah 23 verse 23 says, God speaking here says, am I a God at hand and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill both heaven and earth, declares the Lord? He fills both heaven and earth. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, uh, destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. How many of you have gone to a special elevator somewhere, pushed a button with like a trunk full of things, just gone up in that elevator all the way into heaven, you know, have it open up, taken your stuff, stored it, and then say, okay, cool, thanks, guys, I'll see you in a couple of years, and gone back down to earth. None of us have done that, I think. So how are we supposed to store things in heaven? Well, the truth is that how you live now practically has bearing on eternity. There's a link between heaven and earth. What you do now has repercussions in heaven. You can store up things in a spiritual realm that may not be seen right now, but the scriptures say the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. And so how we live matters because this world that we see is not the only world that exists. We are linked to heaven. God linked us with heaven through Jesus and God cares about both. Our heavenly reality who we are in Christ empowers our daily walk. How you live today, if you're gonna find the strength and the virtue to live a life like the life of Jeremiah, the kind of life that God calls us to, you have to know the link between heaven and earth. And you have to trust in your heavenly reality and identity in order to be empowered to live daily in this life. Jeremiah knew this. And that's why he had such an authentic relationship with God. Jeremiah knew that without God's strength, I'll never run with horses. I'll never be able to remain faithful. I'll never be able to, to remain the course, to stay the course in what he's called me to do or become the person he's called me to be. But because of this authentic relationship and connection that Jeremiah had with heaven, he also turned out to be one of the most practical people in history. Faith is practical. All of his ideas and beliefs got turned into actions. And that's really what it means to have integrity. Integrity means integrous. It means that, that you are one with what you claim to be, that there aren't two separate parts. A lack of integrity is when there is something that you are here that is disconnected to something that you are over here. So if you claim to be something on a Sunday, but there's no evidence of that in your life Monday to Saturday, you would say that person has a lack of integrity. In structural terms, when something has a lack of integrity, you would say that when there is pressure added to it, the pressure will cause it to collapse because the weaknesses between the joints aren't connected properly. There's a lack of structural integrity. Jeremiah had integrity. Because what he believed, he lived. And you know why that is the most practical way that you can live? Because how many of us 
spend years wasting our time, wasting our energy, wasting our efforts, trying to create a double life. Guess what? Living a double life requires twice the amount of time. Living according to what you really believe is the most practical way to live because you only have to live one life because there's integrity. So I claim to be something. I, I, I claim to believe something. And then I just live out what I believe, one life. But when I stand over here and I say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is what I, but at the same time, I know that behind the scenes, I'm living a double life. Now I have to live that life and this life. I have to remember who I am in that context. And I have to try and remember who I am in this context as well. And the further these two are removed from each other, if my other life is over here and the life I claim to be is over there, that is a lot of wasted time. I'm constantly running between who I claim to be and who I really am. It's a lack of integrity. It's impractical living. When you have faith, when you claim to believe something and you live what you believe, you waste so little time. It's the best way to live. If what you claim to be here on a Sunday is different to the way that you practically live Monday to Saturday, it would be fair to question whether you really hold that belief, if there's a disconnection. Our world praises practicality. I mean, that's part of the gospel of our world right now is, is everything as practical as possible. But yet most live incredibly impractical lives, wasting time and energy, convincing themselves and others that they believe a certain way while never really, really allowing those things to direct their daily lives. I love to joke with vegans a little bit. If you're a vegan here this morning, we love you. We believe in you, and, and God cares about you, all right? But, but, but many of these vegans and you know, so-called animal rights activists still drive cars with leather seats, right? Like they have to claim one thing, and then they have to remember, oh, wow, that impacts a lot of the other parts of my life. And so if you are a vegan on the basis of of, uh, of animal rights here this morning, you've got to trade in that car with those leather seats. You've got to swap out that leather le um, laptop bag that you have and your shoes and your wallet, and you've got to go cloth. It's not just vegetables, it's also cloth, okay? Cloth isn't cruel, hashtag cloth isn't cruel. <laughs> but Jeremiah was convinced that when God creates things, he created them to work well, right? How, how many of you think the, the creator of heaven and earth that sets all things into being, think about how nature works and how our bodies work and how everything that God has done, how finely tuned it is. Jeremiah held this belief that when God does something, when God creates something, he made it to work well. And that when they don't or when people live badly, it's because they're out of sync with God. The more our society is out of sync with God, the more we have exploitation and selfishness and sin and wasted years increasing because people no longer walk practically with God. Listen to this prophecy early on in the book of Jeremiah, in, in Jeremiah 3, verse 21 to 22. It says, the sound of voices comes drifting out of the hills, the unhappy sound of Israel's crying, Israel's lamenting, the wasted years, lamenting the wasted years, never once giving her God a thought. Come back, 
wandering children. I can heal your wanderlust. God is saying that, that people have, have wandered from him and they're seeking fulfillment and significance in so many different places. And God is saying, you're wasting years. And we get to the end of our lives and we realize, I wasted my life. He invites us, you don't need to do that. Come to me and I will direct your life. And it will be practical and powerful at the same time. As we've seen before in this study, Israel ignores God's call, ignores God's invitation for them to return and be healed. And so judgment arrives in the form of a Babylonian invasion. The Babylonians arrive in 587 BC. And we saw last time that they, they captured the city and took the leaders of the people, all the influential people of the city, and marched them across the desert to Babylon, a thousand kilometers, and they're leaving behind leaderless people to live within a measure of political freedom, but still subjected to Babylonian rule. And this goes on for about 11 years, and the people are living in that way, politically subject to Babylon. But restlessness and agitation starts to build and get the better of them. And at one point, they come up with a plot to overthrow the Babylonian rule. And as I've mentioned before, there were two world powers at this time of Jeremiah that were fighting for supremacy in the world at that time. And the one was the Babylonians, the other one was the Egyptians. And so they come up with a plan, Israel comes up with a plan to approach the Egyptians to ask their help in overthrowing the Babylonians. And so they develop this plot, but it fails. And the Egyptians realize this isn't going to work out. We've bitten off more than what we can chew. The Babylonians have got their foothold in here and they withdraw from the battle. And now the Babylonian empire is upset with Israel and is going to punish them, going to come down hard on them for trying to overthrow their rulership. And we enter one of the darkest times in Israel's history. At this time, Jeremiah is under arrest. He was traveling to his hometown, which was about five or six kilometers outside of Jerusalem in a little town called Anathoth. And Jeremiah is traveling to Anathoth, and along the way, one of the gods stops him and arrests him and accuses him of, of collaborating with the Babylonians and defecting to the side of the enemy. And so now Jeremiah is put in prison, and he's kept, in God, um, he's kept under God in one of the palace rooms with limited freedom in this space. We see that here. Uh, in Jeremiah 32, verse 2, it says, At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So Babylon now arrives back. They've come back into Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the God that was in the palace of the king of Judah. So he's in prison. The Babylonians have come back. They're upset about this plot to overthrow their rulership. And this time, they're not playing games. They're not just going to take the leaders of Israel into captivity. Now they're fetching everyone. Now everybody is going into captivity. Everybody is going to be deported. And they are going to leave the land of, of Israel in utter desolation. And so this is bad news in general for the people of Israel. Jeremiah himself is in prison. And in that time, Jeremiah does one of the most impractical things you could possibly think of. I mean, it is impractical at best and absolutely crazy at worst. You would think that Jeremiah had completely lost his mind. The Babylonian armies arrive 
to take all of Israel into captivity, and they are camped on the lands in Anathoth, five kilometers north of Jerusalem. They're camped there. All these armies have, have arrived. And God tells Jeremiah to go ahead and do this. In Jeremiah 32, verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of God, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So God tells Jeremiah to buy a piece of land that he is about to be deported off of. He's about to leave that nation and in all likelihood will never see the land again. And God says, I want you to go and purchase a land. I want you to pay money for it. I want there to be witnesses. I want you to seal the deal and, 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 and the entire, the, the deed, and I want you to store it. I want you to, I want you to go and buy property. Land distribution without compensation at this point, right? And just before it happens, go buy some land. Completely impractical, makes absolutely no sense. The armies of Babylon are literally camped on the land that Jeremiah is told to buy. And all of them are about to be deported. Who buys property in a land that they will most likely never see again? But here's the thing. To Jeremiah, the presence of the Babylonian armies and the reality of deportation is not the ultimate reality. Jeremiah stands with true faith, authentic faith, in a deeper reality, the reality of God. The reality of a God who knows, a God who is all-powerful, a God who can turn any situation around. More than the armies of Babylon, more than the threat of deportation and captivity, more than any earthly timeline, Jeremiah's reality and actions are shaped by the reality of God. Why? Because his faith was real. It was real. In Jeremiah 32 verse 9, it says, And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, the son of Mashiah, in the presence of Hanamal, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the God. I charged Barach in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthen earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Wow. He goes and he buys the field. And he puts his trust in the reality that God is faithful to his word. 
that God is faithful to his promises. I think it's significant that Jeremiah says, I want you to take this deed and I want you to put it in an earthenware vessel so that it may last a long time. Jeremiah has no idea of the timeline of how long it will take before God fulfills the promise of restoration. Yet what Jeremiah decides to do in this moment is act in hope. He says, I will put my faith in the God who restores and I will hold on to the title deed of what he has given me, of what I have bought. No matter how long it takes, I hold on to hope. Put it in a vessel that lasts a long time because even if it takes years, God is faithful. He lives in the reality of hope. He acts according to the reality of hope. Buying a field in a besieged land moments before he is to be deported because he lives in reality, not the reality of fear, not the reality of loss, not the reality of discouragement, but the reality of Romans 8.28 that says we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. That's the key to hope. We live by hope. We act in hope. We walk in hope. Our hope is not in our circumstances, but in a God who works all of our circumstances together for our good and according to His purpose. That's what's our bedrock. That's the center of our hope. And here's the thing, Anchor Church. It is the most practical way to live. It's practical. G.K. Chesterton said, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery and platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. It just seems so unreasonable. Go and buy a field. But hope is the most practical and indispensable part of our lives. Jeremiah buys a field on a besieged land moments before he is taken into captivity. And then he has some buyer's remorse. Have you ever suffered buyer's remorse? Like you know your budget's tight, you know you shouldn't spend this money, but you're standing in front of the thing, you're st standing in the store, you know the marketing has gripped you a little bit, the salesman is doing a good job, and you're like, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna take the plunge. I know it's too much, but I'm just gonna buy it. And you buy it, and you walk out, and you feel like a little bit of a cold sweat, and you're like, what, what have I done? And all of a sudden, you begin to feel buyer's remorse, and you're wondering, can I return it? Can I sell it? Can I, can I recover some of this money that I know I shouldn't have sent somehow? Maybe I just won't do groceries for the rest of this month, just to kind of even things out a bit. And Jeremiah has buyer's remorse. He just bought a field, and he's about to leave the country. And so what does Jeremiah do? The same thing he continually does whenever he feels this way. He prays. And so in Jeremiah 32, verse 16, it says, after I had given the deed of purchase to Barach, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, oh, Lord God, there it is again. We've seen this before. By his remorse. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. 
nothing is too hard for you. You see, he's drawing on the strength of heaven in order to act in hope here on earth. Do you see that? Do you see how he's, he's just taken a step of faith, buying a field in this land, and he realizes that this doesn't make sense to my, to my earthly human flesh. But in that moment, he turns to God and he says, God, you are able to do everything and anything. He draws from the reality of heaven to give him strength here on earth so that he can remain faithful to what he's called to do. Nothing is too hard for you, God. That's his strength. God responds to his prayer in Jeremiah 32, verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way. You see, that's what the miracle that God was doing here. Through the judgment, the temporary judgment of Babylon, God was actually restoring their identity as his people. In verse 42, it continues, For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. For years, Jeremiah had been warning the people, God is calling you back. God is calling you home. God is calling you to trust in Him. And they didn't listen. And now this warning comes to fruition, and there's judgment that arrives. And now that it's here, we would expect Jeremiah to shout out, I told you guys. How long have I been telling you? Stop messing around. Turn to God. Follow Him faithfully. But we see none of that in Jeremiah's response. Jeremiah doesn't say, I told you so. He instantly declares that even though there is temporary judgment, there is ultimate hope. God never proclaims judgment without hope. And this was a foreshadowing of Christ. Because you are thinking, how is God going to judge me? God has already judged you. He judged you by punishing Jesus, by pouring out the entire cup of his wrath, all of that indignation that it speaks of, God's anger with sin. He poured it out on Jesus, on the cross. And then he turned the cup upside down, put it down and declared, it is finished. And so even though we deserve judgment, for our sins, we have been freed from that judgment by the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. And therefore, what does God declare over our lives? Hope. There is hope because Jesus has paid the price. There is the hope of restoration. God is for you and has done everything necessary to make sure that nothing will ever separate you from Him again. Look at the heart of God declared here in Jeremiah 31. In verse 2, it says, This is the way God put it. They found grace out in the desert. These people who survived the killing Israel, 
out looking for a place to rest, met God looking for them. God told them, I've never quit loving you, and I never will. Expect love, love, and more love. And so now I'll start over with you and build you up again, dear virgin Israel. You'll resume your singing, grabbing tambourines, and joining the dance. In verse 9, he continues saying, Watch them come. They'll come weeping for joy as I take their hands and lead them. Lead them to fresh, flowing brooks. Lead them along smooth, uncluttered paths. Yes, because I'm Israel's father, and Ephraim's my firstborn son. Verse 20, Oh, my child in whom I take pleasure, every time I mention your name, my heart bursts with longing for you. Everything in me cries out for you. Softly and tenderly, I wait for you, declares the Lord. This is the heart of God towards us, even towards sinners, even towards those that are still in exile, running away from Him. His heart bursts every time He thinks of us. He longs to lavish us with His grace and His goodness. And that is the source of our hope. That is the deeper reality of our lives. We are the ones loved by God and we trust relentlessly in that love. We act on it practically every day. We base our lives on the truth of a God who is faithful, whose heart bursts every time he thinks of us. Buying that field was a deliberate act of hope. And hope commits us to actions that connect us with God's promises. A conviction that God is faithful and will complete the work because of who he is. This act of Jeremiah, as crazy as it seemed at the time, turned out to be one of the greatest acts of faith in all of history. While an army is taking over your land, you're buying property. You know what it did for the people of Israel? It transferred that hope to others. Because they're watching the armies. They can see the armies. They can see the armies. They know what's about to happen. They're about to be uprooted from their homeland and marched across the desert. What will Jeremiah do? What will the man of God do? What will this prophet do? Did you hear Jeremiah just bought land? He just bought property? What does he know that we don't? He wouldn't have done it if he didn't believe completely in his heart that God was going to bring us back. And all of a sudden, the faith within all of Israel rises just a little bit. That's what happens when you begin to live out your faith. When you begin to act in hope. While everybody else is running away and worried and fearful, when we, as God's people, as His church, act in faith and act in hope, we raise the spiritual temperature of our city and of our nation and of those around us. How can you have hope in such a time as this? Well, let me tell you about the God that I serve. How incredibly powerful is it to live in this way? It gives a foothold for others to find their way out of despair. 
hope-determined actions participate in a future that God is bringing into being and becomes a witness to others that we not only believe in God, because many people say, I believe in God. But the real question is, do you believe the God that you believe in? Do you believe the God that you believe in? Do you believe that what he said was true? Do you believe that his promises promises stand? Do you believe that he is faithful to his word? Because if you really did, your life would look different. Your actions would be filled with hope. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together this morning as we pray.